Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, well, good afternoon, boys. We are back for another podcast. I didn't join you on the last one. Um, and, and the viewers have said it, the ratings were a lot higher because it was just you two interviewing and not me, which I'm a little bit, um, I'm sure that's wrong. But um, but I'm back for this one anyway to make amends. So how are you both? What's the weather like, Mike, where you are? Gorgeous. Lovely. Very, very nice. Ian? Same here. Sun's shining. Summer's arrived. I know. It's been all right. That's the last few weeks, hasn't it? It's not been... It's not that the water temperatures for swimming haven't actually been getting as high as we thought they would be, but because um, I think you keep getting a couple of chilly days and a bit of a downpour to drop the water temperature and stuff. But, but otherwise, it's not been that bad. I've got fairly good run of weather so far, touch wood, without putting any uh, any dampers on it. Um, well, we've got a good podcast today, which is all about Ironman UK's approaching, which is one of our local races. We are just uh, we're almost on the course here where the shop is. And um, lots of local people doing it, and it's a good one to to put out at this time of year, like common rookie errors just, you know, as you go into Ironman in the last few weeks and tapering and all those kind of things. So that's what we're going to talk about on the podcast. Of course, it would be relevant for any Ironman, not just for Ironman UK. But as we're only a few weeks away, it's a good one to get out there for the listeners. But before we do that, of course, we would get, well, I mean, thousands of complaints would be fired in if we didn't do tweets of the week. I would suspect. So um, I, I just haven't got the time to deal with that kind of admin. So we have to open with Tweets of the Week, which is our, if, you, if nobody's listened to this podcast before, why not? But if you're not listening to this podcast before, Tweets of the Week is very, very simple. We have to recap our last three tweets and we have to be blind and we have to try and recap them bang on a minute. And the closest to a minute wins. Um, um Mike, how's the preparation been going this week for Tweets of the Week? Well, funny you say that. One particular tweet, which will be probably the only chance in my lifetime I'm going to mention about it, will probably blow me into about five-minute territory anyway. So um, <laughs> no prep. I'm just going to go with the with a special one this week. Yeah, just what? With just one tweet? No, I've got three. I'll probably spend seven seconds on the first two, and about four and a half minutes on the last one. You'll find out why. Okay. Okay. Ian, as you're training on for Tweets of the Week, have you been tapering down your tweets over this last five days? Get ready for today. Yeah, I've been, I've been practicing uh, each day and uh, I think I'm confident I can get under 10 minutes now. Under <laughs> 10 minutes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, Mike's, Mike looks like he's just, you know, proper on it and he's focused. So uh, he's probably looking at a secret clock there that we can't see. So, do you want to time him, Ian? Yeah, I'll do, I'll do oh, Honestly, don't bother. I'm going to be minutes. I'm going to take my time on this one. 
<laughs> this could be my week. This could be my week. Put it in Ian's capable hands. Um, so you've got to uh, get ready for the um, for the countdown. I, I'm, I'm getting, getting ready. I've got several minutes on the clock ready for my. I'll count it down. Three, two, one, go. Cool. So my first tweet was a little video I posted yesterday, actually, where I explained actually as a physio why I quite like it when my patients use Dr. Google. Lots of healthcare professionals complain and think it just muddies the waters and complicates things. But in my opinion, when someone comes and they've done that research, then it often opens conversations up. It allows you to explore their thinking, their fears, their thoughts. So um, I really don't mind people looking at Dr. Google. My second one is for those returning from a, a running injury and trying to broach the gap between rehab and return to run. Consider skipping a bit more, bit of skipping on the spot. We see some some really good evidence to show that that can be really effective as a safe plyometric intro to return to run. But who cares about them too? Because my third tweet. For those who may not know, Wales are going to the World Cup. I was there. The kids were there. It was the fourth or fifth greatest day of my life behind getting married, having the birth of my children, representing GB. There we are. Next one in the queue. Wales are going to the World Cup. First time in 64 years. Something I never thought I'd see happen in my in my lifetime. And I have been pinching myself every day since Sunday, waking up going, is this real? Wales are going to the World Cup. So I don't care if it takes 17 minutes to do it. I'm just going to pause on that. That's that. Wales are off to the Footy World Cup. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so it might be another 68 years before you go so long on Tweets of the Week as well. Yeah, yeah. Until Mark or I win as well. But you were slightly yeah. over a minute. No, that's fine um, this week. I, I'm still confident I won't come last. <laughs> I, I, I was wondering whether the first one was the long one. But <laughs> Until you said it was the third one. Uh, it, so it was one minute, 32 seconds. Oh, I, I might get a silver medal here with you too. <laughs> it's still possible. <laughs> Very um, doable. Who, who's going? Hey, do you want to go next, Ian? Go on then, yeah. Do you want to time in Mike with you? Yeah, can... I've got a clock. One minute, 33 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have two in in 20 seconds and then go nuts on the last one. Okay, three, two, one, off you go. Okay, so the first one of mine was a retweet that I um, sent out yesterday. It was a, a new paper that came out on sex-specific physiological responses to ultramarathons. Um, I say I only found it yesterday, so I've not read the full paper, but it looks very interesting looking at differences in responses, so physiological responses. So um, they basically collected data at UTMB and CCC, uh, on male and female athletes and looking at a, a wide range of physiological responses and without getting into the details the bottom line is that it seems that you know the responses were worse for males than females which might explain some of the differences that we see in performance between males and females so look forward to reading that one fully um second one uh was a uh, an article in outside online that i retweeted and it was um uh, they can get you disqualified, but our thicker shoes faster. So basically looking at these really thick shoes that Dorea Harissa had used and been disqualified for at the Vienna Marathon and whether there's actually benefit at that point, because obviously you've got to offset the extra weight. And then the final one was a tweet by Camille Heron, 
uh, and basically she was raising concerns about anti-doping testing in mountain ultra and trail and saying that she'd been in communication with the US anti-doping so it was really good to see an elite athlete um, you know, speaking out about clean sport and anti-doping and that's me. Ooh. Have we all just given up today on trying to do 60 seconds? <laughs> what do you mean today? It's not a bad comeback. Tweet one took 45 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> we managed to bring it home and take the lead with 126. The, th- the thing is, I, d- I didn't care about this before I started, and now I suddenly feel under pressure because for the first time ever, I could win tweets of the week. Honestly, for the listeners, we record this on Skype so the three of us can see each other. Mark's literally just put his game face on. <laughs> literally just leaned forward in the chair. His eyes have switched. It's like he's going for this. So, you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. Okay, my first tweet. Uh, not weekend gone, but the weekend before. Uh, went for a trip to Sicily. Uh, took my dad. My dad was 86 and it was his birthday. My dad's dad was killed in World War Two. So, I took my dad and his brother to Sicily to see the amazing Commonwealth Cemetery uh, where all the soldiers who were killed in Sicily are buried. And that was just absolutely fantastic weekend. We went there and saw the grave and spent a lot of time there reading a lot of the other gravestones as well. Very emotional weekend, but yeah, an amazing trip. Um, My second tweet is one I put out uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Interestingly, right across the UK, numbers down significantly 20 to 30 percent on all events. And a lot of events being cancelled. You know, something like one of the outlaw halves was cancelled. Rip and try was recently cancelled. Brecker swim run pulled out of the UK or folded or something. So interesting how events are very much down this year when you would think they'd be up after the COVID thing. And my third one really is just more around the Tri Kids stuff. So we're doing a lot of the Tri Kids stuff in school, and we've recently uh, set up another project which is to sponsor some young athletes in the northwest. And we've got the, the talented youngsters who are on the English program. We're putting a bit of funding into that as well to help those guys progress and hopefully, you know, see them on the Olympic podium in a few years' time. Stop. Oof. I must, no way, I must have won. There's no way that was over 90 seconds. Oh. No way. 126 was Ian. And that is a 127. No way. <laughs> no way. I'm only joking. 115, he takes get the in, gold. <laughs> takes the gold. Overshot by 25%, but takes the gold still. Yeah. I've like won gold with a personal worst there, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> there was. It's like winning the uh, winning the hundred meters, but Ian and I turned up as the front and back end of ours. Yeah. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't claim too much of a victory there. Yeah. When, when you said 127, Mark was about to say, well, it said 115 on my stopwatch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mark, as a, as a race organiser, what, what do you think about the participation numbers? What's your What, what do you think is causing all that? I don't know, and it's very strange. I mean, I say some of the, the, the big events this year have been cancelled already, and it's down to lack of entries, purely down to lack of entries, and we can't afford it. But there, there's, a, there's multiple issues here. So there is one thing there is, everybody will first of all jump at cost of living. So we're being told, I mean, you know, at, can, I could I could rattle on about this for hours, but you know the news in, in in general, just hammering people all the time, whether it was COVID or cost of living on. Now we're all getting this. What's this monkey rash that we're getting now? It's um, what's it called? What monkey else? Pox. What, what's the thing? Monkey, monkey pox. pox yeah. Is it? Monkey pox is yeah. the next thing. But it's just I just find I personally just find the news just constantly just attacking people all the time, and just never seems to be anything happy going on in the UK. So I, I have to switch it off half the time. 
But I think that is impacting on people, whether they, there is a genuine cost of living to them or whether they're told there's a cost of living. I think there is an impact there. However, all the events which are free are also down. So, you know, you see like the park runs struggling with numbers and struggling for volunteers. A lot of events can't get volunteers as well. That's common across all events. So, so I don't just believe that it is a cost of living. I think there's something else going on there with um, with motivation or whatever, or people just wanting to change, whether the COVID year got them out of the habit or it was a forced break and now they're looking at doing other things. I don't know. I think participation might still be up, but maybe not competitive. You know, I think the participation may be the same. Um, and the other, I mean, we've got problems with um, with events, specifically cancelling as well. What's happened is the suppliers to events have all massively increased their prices. So medals coming in from Europe or China, T-shirts, all of that kind of stuff, medics, portaloos, barriers, all of that stuff massively increased over the last 12 months. And for a lot of organisers who opened their events last year, so if you've got an event this year and entries opened in 2021, in 2022, all the suppliers put the prices up. Well, there's nothing you can do. Your expenses have shot through the roof, but your prices are still the same as they were in 2021. You know, you can't go back and increase your entry fee. And if you did, that probably would have an even worse effect. So I think organisers are probably finding that the margins are so hard that they need maximum fields to, to other, otherwise they're going to lose money. And I think events are one of those things where people look at them and go, oh, 500 people paying this. They're making X amount. And it just isn't the case. You know, the expenses are absolutely huge and they're getting bigger every year. And everybody wants a slice of it, the landowners, the councils and stuff like that. So it's, it's making it very, very difficult and forcing organisers to either need big fields or increase their entry fees for the events to go ahead. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know, really. It'd be interesting just to see. And some events are, 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 are you know, filling absolutely fine and other events are not. So we'll see. It, it'll either come out of it next year, I think, or maybe people have a break and they get back into it. Or, um, you know, there'll just be a different focus. But, yeah, interesting. Interesting to see. But as I say, it's not just the, the pricey stuff. And it's very easy to jump on and go, oh, commercial organisers, I am charging 450 quid, ripping people off. All the free stuff is down as well. The free events and stuff, a lot of those are down as well. So it's not just about price. That's it. That's all I've got to say on the matter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So it does think that there's, there's the, a, a range of factors influencing it, but I do wonder if there's more of sort of. I think some of the uh, mental health issues from the pandemic probably are still carrying on into um, uh, affected people's lives as well coming out just in terms of uh, I think only for people that have been affected they're only really realizing it now that we're coming out of the pandemic how much it has affected them and like you say Mark that might mean that some people might want to participate um, for, for sort of mental health reasons but they might not want the pressure and stress and um, and perceived threat from competition potentially that might be another factor that might be influencing people. What are you finding, Mike, with your people you coach and stuff like that? Are they racing more or are they racing less? Um, <clears throat> there seems to have been a little bit of a, a pendulum shift. Last year we mentioned on some of our talks about everyone trying to do every race and sort of have these really congested calendars to play catch up with those uh, carryover races and stuff. This year, I definitely see people focusing more on one or two races. But, right, you know, I've, I've even got athletes I'm working with where 
there's no B and C race. They've just got an A race and everything's all roads lead to that. Um, but interestingly, I'm seeing it's an associated part, I guess, of the endurance world. But I spent prior to the pandemic, a lot of my coaching workshop, uh, my therapy workshops, my webinars, the teaching stuff that I used to do. I just couldn't put enough dates on, was turning venues down, participation numbers were massive. Online worked well through COVID. Now I'm trying to establish going back in in-person stuff. Demand is really down there as well. Um, and for the first time in maybe a decade, I've had to cancel two courses. Um, just Just numbers weren't there. And I don't know whether people, again, are not wanting to commit for the same reasons you mentioned, whether for some it's a money thing, for some it's a, I don't want to give up a day of my time. Uh, for others, it's, you know, maybe there's a lethargy or a, or maybe a sort of withdrawal symptom. There's so many athletes who pulled out all the stops to stay active through the pandemic that maybe there is this lag period now where now the, the ability to do stuff is there. They've sort of gone, oh, I just need to take a step back. Yeah. So um, so I'm seeing those associated and, and therapists that I know work with these sort of populations are finding numbers down in clinics, same as I am a little um, friend of mine who runs a, a triathlon based gym locally, says memberships drop in and just generally it looks like everybody's just having a little bit of a breather with stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think you'd be alone if they're cancelling those courses. I think generally like online coaching, people like that, all numbers are down. Um, and uh, but interesting, we have we have a open water swimming venue near us. <clears throat> there are three sisters water ski where we we always swim. And on Wednesday nights we have coach swimming. And coach swimming is you will swim in a novice or an intermediate or an advanced group, and it's a bit like a pool session. So in the advanced group on uh, Wednesday night in our advanced group we did like three and a half k, some longer efforts, some shorter harder efforts, and it's it's run like a, a structured session. Uh, and that's what the Wednesday nights are like. And then on Saturdays, we have social swimming where you just can come and swim laps and we have the kids in there and we coach the kids in the water and all that kind of stuff. So this time last year, we're getting about 100 on a Wednesday at the moment. This time last year, we had about 150 plus easily. Definitely coming up to Ironman UK, pushing towards 200 on some Wednesdays. Saturdays last year, we only ever got 30. We had 110 on Saturday. So our numbers are the same over the week. But people coming for a social swim, Saturday's really busy, really nice vibe, really nice feeling coming down. People to come for a social swim. Saturdays are brilliant. You know, and all the kids are there. It's a great atmosphere. Less people wanting the really hard structured stuff. Completely polar opposite to what we've had in previous years. But And it's a tough one because as, as, organ- as, as an event organiser as well, I'd like people to enter as many events as possible of ours because that's what we do, you know. But at the same time, I kind of feel that people have got to do what they need to do and you know, if you force people, you say you've got to start entering events, what will happen is you'll just burn them out if they don't want to do events and they'll they'll go through a cycle and they'll have a break from it and then potentially they'll they'll come back to it and things go in cycles. So, you know, even though I organise events, my view is people have got to do what's right for them and what makes them happy, basically. It's, you know, that's, that's ultimate. There's no point trying to do something which isn't, you know, which is going against what you want to do and then you end up just burning out and, you know, being miserable and <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But, uh, and, and, you know, we, we've looked at it negatively in some ways from uh, organisers, coaches, therapists, sort of income and, and livelihood sort of viewpoint. But actually, we've we've all said for years that many athletes should 
take a step backwards and give themselves a, a breather from it all. So from an athlete-focused point of view, it's probably a really good thing that a lot of people are doing. Yeah. Well, events and, and coaching or online coaching or your business will survive if athletes have longevity. And, and part of longevity is people taking a break. So if you try and force people to do stuff they don't want to do, then they'll just burn out and potentially stop completely. So, yeah. What's your thoughts, Ian? What are you getting from this? Yeah, I think I, I definitely think that it's um, a, a, a bit of kickback from last year, I think. Um, I think a lot of people did go out things very hard coming out um, of the pandemic. And I think this is probably just, a, like you say, things going peaks and troughs. And because there's been a, uh, people have dived back in and maybe not uh, and probably expected more of themselves than they actually got back on the whole in performance wise. So it's probably not a very rewarding experience. So they're probably just still wanting to maintain their, their participation in the sports, but um, not wanting to put the pressure on themselves of competition. Yeah. 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 I think what's key in all this is people need to enjoy themselves, don't they? That's, that's the thing. <laughs> Too, maybe too many, too many races where they pressurise themselves and not enjoyed it. And speaking of enjoying races, we've got Ironman UK in three, three weeks this weekend is Ironman UK. Um, so if, there ever, if there's ever a year where you should be enjoying what you're doing, this is it. And, you know, going into this race in three weeks time what, on the podcast today, what we were going to talk about is common errors that people make um, going into big races like this. Uh, and, and, you know, why they underperform potentially on race day and don't perform to their true ability based on their on their training background. And, uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably the first one. Don't forget to enjoy it, isn't it? You know, because I think that's something to be, to be a fair. Because I've got older or because I'm injured all the time or whatever it may be. Um, but that's one of the things certainly now that I just try and force myself to appreciate is to if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then why are you even doing it? You know, if you can't enjoy going taking part in the event, then that isn't sustainable in the long term. So um, so that's got to be a, a, a big thing to open with is people just, you know, enjoying the race day. Um, I think people maybe just putting too much pressure on themselves. What, what, what do you think, Ian? Yeah, I think there's, uh, as I said, I think that was a, a big issue last year. And I think you've got to be, you know, clear on what you want to get from, um, from an event and uh, in advance you know what is it that you that brings enjoyment for you and pleasure and for some people that is you know very um, very goal oriented um, but at the same time you need to be clear on you know whether you're setting those goals appropriately and whether they're um, they're at the right level for where you're at, at the moment and I think that's the key thing is that um, with going into a big event you need to be evaluating your performance uh, triathlon event you need to be evaluating your performance across the three disciplines um, in a realistic way so that you know that uh, you know where you're at and you, know, you need to be as objective as you can about that because um, you can then set clear goals and, and your objective on the day should be to try and perform as best as possible to where you're at, at the moment not where you'd like to be at and I think too often people set their objectives and the goals around where they'd like to be at or where they were hoping to be at at the start of a program but for you know we all know for lots of reasons you can um, end up not being there um, when you come to the end of the program uh, and it's important that you then evaluating that and then setting those goals around where you're at currently and formulating a plan that allows you to 
um, target your and try and perform to the best of ability where you're at at the moment, and then it, then you can truly evaluate how effectively you've performed on the day. The evaluation of the training program and what got and um, what level you got to at that point, I think, is a separate evaluation. So you need to be in a position to be able to evaluate your performance on the day separately from evaluating your you know the actual program that led you to that point. Yeah. They're two separate things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it. And we've talked about it many times in the past, haven't we? There's the, the training plan, which gets you to a certain level of fitness, and then there's how you perform on the day, and they're two completely separate things. And so many people potentially don't perform to their potential. Maybe they, well, maybe they do perform to the potential, but they somehow in their heads think they're better. But, um, yeah. but, but that's the key thing, isn't it? Can you reach your true potential? Do what you're capable of on 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 race day. Um, uh, Mike, just on that enjoyment thing, any thoughts on that? The, uh, you know, people from a standpoint, from the first standpoint, just enjoying race day and getting the most out of the experience. Yeah, I think particularly with the novices. I see a big trend in first timers at a longer course race putting way too much pressure on themselves to achieve certain goals. A lot of the time, those goals are completely unrealistic for what they, you know, ambition and ability get confused quite a lot. Um, Or they only associate the enjoyment from reaching a particular time or, or achieving a certain goal and, and just doing something for the fun of it, which, which, during the pandemic, a lot of people seem to find that sweet spot of training to just enjoy the process. And that whole sort of harmonious versus obsessive passion type thing. Um, but then the green light came for races and everybody suddenly just made a massive switch back to, to right, it's all about this, this and this. Um, what I've seen particularly, it's all it's all Facebook groups, but particularly in the UK Ironman one, is... Um, the inability and i think this is where fun gets lost the inability to reset a goal lots of little posts you know uh, my training didn't go as well i have deferred from last year last year i was in great shape this year not so much i'm really worried i'm going to make my target time well, just revise your target time it's uh, and enjoy the process of just trying to do a 14 hour instead of the 12 hour that you were trying to do and then reassess again afterwards it's you know um I like people who've got end goals that are in in pen, so to speak. But those sometimes need to be in pencil and then just enjoy the process. Yeah, yeah. So as part of that process, leads us nicely on. We're talking about the process. So the reality is, I mean, what we're going to talk about now and what we've we just talked about for the last five minutes is relevant for any Ironman race. But it just so happens that Ironman UK is three weeks away. And this podcast is coming out, but you know, Nice, I think, is two weeks away, and there's lots of races, and it, it would apply to any event. Some of the stuff we're talking through now, you could really apply it to any kind of event. Um, and I suppose, really, when people start getting into this last two or three weeks, the reality is, in terms of their fitness, they're not going to get any fitter now, are they? You know, we know that they're not going to get any fitter, so there's no point obsessing about the training plan and worrying excessively about how many intervals you should be doing this week, or what percentage of FTP, or what heart rate it should be at. Because the reality is you're not going to get any fitter. So you might as well switch your focus to racing well rather than worrying about the training. So and we do become a bit obsessive about the plan and sometimes forget about the race that's approaching. So as part of that process, we thought we'd break it down today into chunks. And the first one, let's probably 
thinking about that last couple of weeks and going into the taper because the taper is something that people are forever asking questions about you know what's the best way to taper didn't you have put a link to a study on this on twitter ian haven't you looked at um, yeah. the research that's been done recently yeah there was uh, there was a study that had looked at um i think they'd used data from strava yeah. uh, it was specific to marathon running yeah um it was looking at how much people um dropped the volume overall yeah. in, in the weeks leading up and yeah. uh, ones that had followed the more conventional guidelines in terms of you know, uh, dropping a more significant amount had performed better um right. overall yeah so because this is a question but the, the problem with taper is people get so embroiled in it and it's like they probably think it's some kind of silver bullet as well and they get over technical but there's probably some very simple guidelines that we can say to people look if you just follow these guidelines stop stressing about it because it's even more stress and anxiety ahead of the race is the taper there are some really simple guidelines. So that research paper that came out to you, just, just tell us what were the simple bullet points, the kind of simple take home messages from it? Uh, you, you tested me now, but um, it was uh, it was quite a while ago when I read that, but uh, in, I could dig out the exact figures, but it was something like um, you know, dropping by um, sort of 10% for three weeks out, 20% two weeks out and then like 50% in the final week um, for the ones that um, had performed the best. And for the for the other groups who were looking at people that had reduced the volume by less than that. Um, and it, it was a progressive decrement in performance for those that had maintained levels higher as they went deeper into the uh, into the taper. Yeah. So Mike, I mean, with your athletes, Mike, what's the kind of basic tips that you give them? Well, funny enough, um, up until to this morning, one of the things I've been working on this week is updating one of my presentations on tapering. So oh, um, I, I've got the slides open, so I'll, I'll run you through some of my bullet points. So this not is this, not for, for the what, listeners. This in a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for the listeners, don't think that I walk around with this sort of nerdy, geeky info in my head all day long. I am literally reading off some of my slides here. Um, so I think... Bullet points, big things. Obviously, the, the key thing with all of this is a, is a taper should be individual. All the science and all the guidelines that come out of some of the seminal pieces of work that we've got around this offer a starting point that still a scientific starting point that still requires a little bit of trial and error. There's no there's no perfect sort of uh, approach for anyone. Um, but what we seem to see in, in, in the evidence as much as we can now is um, and this all applies let's assume we're trying to prepare for an A race with a good training plan behind us and no injury there are athletes I work with who due to the length of time they try to prepare which may be suboptimal because of injuries sometimes we neglect the taper quite dramatically to, to just get them to the start line but these things are sort of based on what the science would be in the perfect scenario so what we start to see is that a two-week taper of about anywhere from sort of four to 14 days, but optimally about 10 to 14 days, seems to be no better or no worse than shorter or longer. We see some people that go right up to a sort of five-week taper, but again, it's when individuals come in. The key thing with it is that we drop volume rather than frequency or intensity. Um, frequency is quite an interesting one. 
when it comes to things like the swim, some of the cycling stuff, if you're in a discipline or you have a problem with things like feel and touch, then often frequency shouldn't be neglected because we need to keep that regular pattern of exposure. Um, and a lot of people will often report that, oh, I feel like my intensity's gone up when realistically their actual intensity hasn't it's a relative intensity i'm doing less volume i'm doing the same amount of high intensity work but it feels like i'm doing more and the science would suggest right now that the two-week taper working exponentially on reducing volume by anywhere between 41 and 60 percent without altering training or frequency seems to be the most efficient there are things that um will will change based on certain disciplines um one of the biggest myths most people need to need to come away from is that a longer race needs a longer taper. So you'll see people who taper for an Olympic try then think they need a, a four or five week taper potentially for a 70.3 or beyond, and they probably don't. Um, that would be my main things. Obviously, there's different types of tapers. You've got step tapers, linear tapers, exponential tapers, which are all basically just different ways to reduce training load in different variables. Um, what we seem to see is that a progressive taper where training load um, is decreased in a stepwise progressive manner rather than a sudden or consistent, I chop 5% off every day type of thing, um, seems to be more or less beneficial than a more progressive one. Um, what else we got in some of these slides? Well, what I always do chat about with people, most people's fear with the taper is that sort of feeling of lethargy and a little bit stale and stuff when they're in it. There's so many systems in the body from psychology to chemical and blood and hormonal and everything that there's a whole soup of things going on that's trying to allow us to dissipate fatigue. So don't worry why those things happen. And if it's not your first rodeo, then you're usually OK at starting to deal with those things. Um, don't make knee jerk reactions in a taper. If it, if you do feel a bit achy, rusty, lethargic or the sessions that you are doing, don't feel great. Don't stress. Don't make any big knee jerks. Doesn't seem to be too much evidence to suggest tapers need to be different between the sexes. Um, and then my, the last thing I always say for, for most things with the taper is um, spend a little bit of time and attention on your nutrition and hydration. Um, by default, we're trying to we're, we're decreasing energy expenditure, so we do need to decrease energy intake. That's often why people feel so rubbish in a taper because they end up putting on weight, they end up retaining water because they still try to fuel or they go into this extended carb load type of thing and that can often lead to some of the problems and then really within that taper because the training will drop and because things um, become different I'm just a big fan of really getting people to focus on the stuff that they can control then so if you've got more time spend time on planning your journey planning your route to where you're going to go planning and checking your kit and, and all the usual stuff that people would say um it's quite a, a lot said about a taper there really but um but if anyone's listening and they are either in bolton or other races 
and they want some of that science or some of those slides out done, then when you see us sharing it on social media, drop a comment in the box and we'll go down any rabbit holes people want to with some of the science. But um, for now, I guess those would be my big take homes. I think too. My head, of yeah. 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 Just to Mark, I think you're you're muted, Mark. I'm back on. We're back on. Okay. Just to summarise some of the stuff then. So we're saying ten to fourteen days. So um two weeks are down to ten days. So like if someone's doing an Ironman, if they're doing Ironman UK, for example, ten to four, start reducing from from ten to fourteen days. Um, so for a lot of people, I always say, don't be a hero on the weekend before. Because that's when people do the long ride and long run, isn't it? On the Saturday and Sunday. So the Saturday, Sunday before, don't do anything heroic. <laughs> and that, that in itself is quite a big thing, because that's probably the, the weekend is where people probably put more training stress through the body by far than any other day, isn't it? And then in that final week, you're saying routine. So kind of stick to the routine. Drop stuff by 50% and maintain a little bit some intensity in there as well. So it's um, and it, that's it is kind of as simple as that, isn't it? Really, you yes. know. So it doesn't need yeah. to be any more yeah. complicated. You know, if you've had to spend the training block so far working really hard to develop your swimming, then swim a little and often to keep that feel. But you don't hit the water and start going, oh my god, I can't can't get my stroke. If you're someone who's concerned about bike handling around that course and they've ended up spending a lot of time developing their bike handling then ride little and often with a bit of intensity in, in your taper so that you continue to keep that sort of muscle memory and touch yeah and i think that people do overthink it as well and it's they probably overthink it you know unnecessarily because the really finer details are probably not going to make much difference no. to how you feel just back off, you know, don't be a hero on the weekend before. Start 10 to 14 days out. Don't do anything stupid the weekend before. Back off by 50% in the final week and maintain the frequency and a bit of intensity and 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 you'll be fine. But there's another couple of points that you picked out, Mike, though, which I think are really good ones, which was that that it doesn't matter what race you're training for, the taper should probably shouldn't vary. And I think it's a really interesting point that that people, if you ask them they've got a sprint race this Sunday, they would say, Oh, I'll taper for three days. You've got an Ironman, they taper for four weeks. And a taper is designed to allow your body to recover from training load. So whatever your current training load is, it'll either take you three days or two weeks to recover, whatever it is. It doesn't change based on how far you're racing. You know, you don't if if it takes you two weeks to taper, you only taper for three days because it's only a sprint race, then you won't be fresh for that sprint race if it takes you two weeks to taper. So the race kind of has no bearing. Uh, and the lethargy thing, I think, for for people who've maybe not done this before or don't understand this, the lethargy is something that hits everybody, isn't it? And that's why it's important to keep some movement and keep that routine, if you like. I wonder whether the routine, from a mental aspect as well, if the people like routine, don't they? That's why we've got to maintain if you swim three times a week, then still swim at those times because you've got that routine in your week. But that lethargy is normal. I always think with a lethargy, if it's a sprint race, it probably has more impact. With a longer race like an Ironman, you've got 12 to 14 hours to get over it. You'll be all right. You know, <laughs> if you're a bit sluggish for the first 20 minutes, it's not really a big deal, is it? You know, you've got a full day to get over it. Um, and the key thing I would say as well, which I think we should talk more about going into this now, that I think the uh, where well, you hit the nail on the head there is with people, again, being obsessed with the training and oh, what, what in a taper, how many efforts should I do and how many intervals should I do? And really part of the taper should be a complete shift in focus 
to think about all the things that are going to happen that weekend. So do I need to, like you said, plan in my travel? Have I read the event notes properly? You know, what is my race strategy? What's my nutrition? Have I serviced my bike? All of these things, there's all of that stuff ready. Part of the taper should be more focused on get that stuff ready. And I've seen people who have been so focused on the sessions and how the taper should be made up. And then they're running around the Saturday before the race trying to change tyres on the bike. You know, so that's that's part of the taper's got to be that specific stuff for the race, hasn't it? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I'd we, add as well, the because um, uh, one of the mistakes when people deviate from a taper, I think, is is that they sort of worry that they're going to lose fitness. I've gained all this fitness. Now I'm not doing anything. I'm going to drop. I'm going to lose the fitness. And that's when they start panicking. I think um, once upon a time, our thinking was very much that we taper to reveal the fitness that we've we've uh, accumulated and accrued. But what this science is starting to lead us to now is that actually the tapering can enhance performance as well. And we see on average that the range is sort of 0.5 to 6%, and then average is about 3% improvement, in not in time. So that's not 3% faster overall, that's 3% better performing. So, um, so a well-executed taper will you'll reap the rewards from on race day, whereas you can absolutely jeopardise it all. I think my, my my key message I always say to people: I, I see a lot of athletes. Their perception of a taper is that it's a line in the sand that starts as soon as their big training block finishes, and then it's a very passive process to race day. When actually it's not really a line in the sand, but it is an active part of their training plan. Mm. That that, as you said, then there are active things that you can control and you can do to prepare you for race that may not necessarily involve actual training concepts or, or sessions, but but isn't a ticking clock on the wall that's like a countdown to, to blast off where you just sit back and go, right, cool, I just wait now then. That's it. I've done everything I need to. Yeah. So um, it, it's such a vital part that I, I think we misunderstand massively. Uh, huge, huge myths and misconceptions around it. So um, and we've all been there. Just, Three of us have probably had terrible experiences with tapers. I certainly have. Um, I, I think is, it is vital, but uh, at the same time, if you get it close to what the recommendations are, you should take the pressure because you, what you don't want is people been too pressured by getting everything right about the, the, the taper so it, yeah it can, it is important but actually it's probably easier to get to get it right than people think um i think it's one of those things i think the the big issue with the the, the taper is it comes at the time obviously where you feel as though you can't do any more at that point so the training's done um so if i make a mistake in my taper i can't correct it by having a big week next week so there's no margin for error so people feel under pressure but at the same time, um, if you do, I think it's important to be guided by the science, but at the same time, recognise, I think um, you probably both mentioned this uh, earlier, but it, it can be uh, very individual as well. Uh, and I think a lot of the science, a lot of the studies that look at tapers focus um, perhaps naturally on sort of physiological variables or performance, uh, well, performance uh, is probably better, but some of the physiological indices 
um, that might come out, but don't necessarily always look at some of the psychological factors. And I think it's important to think about how people, uh, what people perceive they need to do in a taper as well. Um, but and much better if that is based on their past performances. So an evaluation of when have I raced well, how did I taper then, how does that correspond to the guidelines, and through a sort of an amalgamation of those two things, you can then develop a strategy for your taper. Because then that's good. It's not just been based on you know, some of the guidelines that Mike just went through, but also on your past experiences and what's worked well for you. And that combination of factors should be something that will give you confidence um, in that tip. But I think that is an, and that's why the timing for this podcast is good, because that uh, now is the perfect time to be doing that. Because I think that taper needs to be designed and developed in advance of starting it because Mike mentioned there and one of the important things is it's when people start feeling lethargic or start picking up a niggle or something doesn't feel right or they don't feel as sharp in a session that people start adjusting things and I think you've got to you know have an agreement with yourself in advance that yeah this is what based on what I've done in the past and what's worked for me in the past based on what the evidence suggests this is a taper I'm going to follow um, you know, obviously taking into account lifestyle factors and other things that might influence what you can actually do. But as long as you're close to what your plan is, you can then evaluate that plan afterwards. If you start changing things on a daily basis based on, you know, your emotions and your mood and how you're feeling on that day or how the last session went, you end up with a taper that doesn't serve you a, a, a lot of, um, uh, uh, doesn't serve you in the future going forward. And what we're always trying to do, I think, in all of our training is to learn from it and improve it and do things better the next time. And I think the other important thing for a taper in particular is to keep a diary and keep a record of how you're feeling. Because I think you'd be surprised, a lot of athletes would be surprised if you go back and look at what they experienced in the taper. Because I think we forget and we can feel very lethargic, but we can also, niggles emerge that we haven't experienced throughout our training and we start thinking this is a lot, you know, this doesn't make sense. It's illogical. When I was doing, you know, 100 miles a week, whatever it was, I didn't experience this. Now I've backed off. You know, I've got this nigger. I, I, I raced a 100 mile ultra last Saturday and all last week, I had a pain in my left knee that I've never experienced before. And then I ran 100 miles at the weekend and I didn't feel it once. But if I hadn't kept a record of that, you know, in six months time, in nine months time, when I race again and I go back, I'd probably forget that that had happened. And then when I experience something bizarre in the future, that's going to affect me. I'm going to be more stressed by that. Whereas if I can look back and think, well, this is actually quite normal. This is part of the, the tapering process. It's probably going to affect me less. Um, so I think it is really useful to sort of keep that diary and, and recognise that even a day before or two days before you can be feeling you know, nothing like you'll feel like on race day. Um, and that, that is just the nature of, uh, of competition. And that's very difficult for someone who's racing for the first time. And that's another reason for them to sort of take pressure off the cells. But it's also a reason for them to sort of listen to other athletes and learn from other athletes, I think, and recognise that this is, this is quite normal um to to feel that way and then to keep a record of it so that they can um, not be as affected and um, be more aware of those feelings in the future um the only other thing i'd say is well obviously we said there about sort of keeping the the right length of taper you know some people do like the idea of a a, a three-week taper going into something as long as iron man 
usually a, a three-week taper would include it, incorporate a very low reduction in volume in that first week anyway. So I think if someone is, you know, if they do have a preference for that, that's the kind of thing that you could just adjust, you know, a small amount of reduction in your volume that first week. You're not really going a long way from those guidelines, but it is going to give you more confidence because it's more consistent with your own beliefs. But the other thing about um, keeping the same length of taper regardless of the length of the race, I think, is that's assuming it's your A race. Um, Because obviously you don't want to be doing it too a two-week taper before before every race. Sometimes people will use a sprint or an Olympic in the uh, in the build-up, or even a half Ironman uh, in the build-up. You probably don't want to be doing a full taper for all of those because that's going to start impacting on your build-up. Um, but if if a sprint race is your A race, then you should be tapering just the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the um, uh, a couple of things I'm going to say then with that with the taper is that. <clears throat> We're talking about people getting um, feeling lethargic in the final week. I always remember reading something in the magazine, and I'm sure it was it was Steve Jones's training diary when he set the world marathon record or something. There was a great little thing, and, and it, I can't remember. It, it was many many years ago when I read this, and it, and it had something like you know, Friday ran five miles, legs feeling very heavy. Saturday five miles easy legs really heavy feel dreadful and then it just said sunday new world record (laughs) and i remember that so but i think the i guess when we're talking about people feeling lethargic and so on what we're trying to avoid is people stressing about the race because the thing is if you had a rest week in your training you would feel a bit lethargic you could a taper week is like a rest week isn't it so let's say you did a hard four-week training block and then you had a recovery week and then you're going to do another four-week training block in that four-week training block, you might feel a bit uh, in that recovery week between the two blocks. You might feel a bit lethargic in that and a bit, a bit heavy and so on. But no one bothers about it. No one cares about it. You haven't got a race on Sunday. That's the main thing of the of the year. That's the thing, isn't it? It's a it's the race on Sunday which makes you anxious about the way you feel. So yeah. it's um, and ultimately, what we're trying to avoid is stress and anxiety in that final week. So stop worrying about it. It's just creating a further problem. You know, keep it simple. Do the guidelines we've just said. Plan it out in advance. Record it, like Ian said. Uh, do those base. Write it out. In, you write it down and just stick to it to the guidelines we've just said, and stop worrying about it. And you're going to feel lethargic. Don't worry about it. And then switch your focus to race day. Start worrying about all those other things you need to do to make sure you've read all the information. You've got your checklists and everything else. So, so moving on then, <clears throat> we're just going to try and skim through some common errors. Maybe it's a good way to go through like swim, bike and run and kind of talk about these things. And I know that some of the errors will cross over all disciplines, but I'm going to start with swim. So for me, the swim is key for a lot of people because I think the problem in triathlon, if we're talking about Ironman triathlon, is that there's a lot of people who think that swimming is the least important discipline because it's the shortest one. You spend least time in the water, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. And like to think, generally because they don't like swimming, that swimming isn't actually that important. The issue that I find with swimming is that, you know, you, you, you see people having anxiety attacks in the water and things like that. I've never seen anybody have an anxiety attack on the bike or on the run. I don't know if anybody else has, but I've never seen anybody have an anxiety attack on the bike or on the run. It only happens in swimming. So is it swimming that causes anxiety attacks? Well, there is a breathing issue and you've got your face in the water and all that stuff. 
But of course, what's critical about the swim, it is the first discipline of the three. And anxiety and stress probably starts building from the minute you get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning or whatever it is, if you've slept at all. And the anxiety will build and build. And at Ironman UK, everybody walks down and they get in the start pen and the anxiety is getting worse and worse. And they're trying to see the friends in the crowd. And then Ironman put on the national anthem and then they put on Thunderstruck. And at this point, you're reaching a crescendo of anxiety. And then they go, go. And everybody jumps in the water. So it's probably not surprising that that's where the panic attacks occur. So I'll come to the psychologist first. Ian, <laughs> thoughts on that mindset and just dealing with that first? Because I think about the swim, because it's the first discipline. If you cock it up, you have cocked up the rest of the day. You've got the whole bite to stress about what went wrong in the swim and the whole run. For most Ironman competitors, stuff's going to go wrong in the second half of the run. We know that. That's where stuff goes wrong in the second half of the run. But you've got most of the way through the race before you start to suffer and it goes wrong. If the swim goes wrong, your day has started dreadfully and you've got the rest of the day to worry about it. So let's think about that mindset, Ian, then before the swim starts. What do we need to do? Well, I think something you can do uh, well in advance in terms of your planning for the race is to is to set performance and process goals for each of the disciplines and to try and separate them uh, in that way because then that helps um, with the uh, you know if something does go wrong in the swim and you're isolating it and you're not seeing that as something that is linked and, and directly influential on the uh, later events. Um, so if you uh, and as we go through the different um, components, I'll talk about um, pro, the, the importance of process and performance goals for each of the the legs. And I think um, what you can actually do uh, is place more importance on processes and, and performance goals and differently for the different um, disciplines. And I think swim is one in particular where, for a couple of reasons, it can be useful to focus primarily on the process goals because it's, firstly, it's very difficult to monitor how quickly you're going while you're actually so. Yeah, you're on the bike, you might have a power meter, you might have a, you can see your average speed running, quite often you're getting information on speed, you got, potentially could be looking at power as well. In the swim, it's very much on feel. Um, and also in, in terms of sort of strategy, there's more you can actually do in terms of strategy, um, it, it, because you can obviously draft in the swim, whereas you can't in, in the other disciplines. Um, so what you can actually do is set uh, very clear process goals in terms of what you're planning to do in terms of getting into a certain group or you know sharing the work or uh, dropping in with it on, on someone else's feet um, in the swim but also at the same time sort of, although you might have a, a, a rough target for your performance not putting too much emphasis on, on meeting that um, because therefore um, if you are a minute or two off it, it means that you, you maybe didn't quite get on the feet that you wanted to but that is energy that you're probably saving for later in the day and it's still only a minute or two. So as long as you are making sure that you know, what you're doing in terms of the processes and the, your planning is getting you into approximately the right sort of group to work in, then you shouldn't stress too much about whether you meet the performance target um, for that discipline. Um, and then you know, isolating that from the later events as well um, so that you're not, you know, you're not depending on success in the swim 
in terms of your uh, performance in the later events. I think those by doing that, going, planning in that way will certainly help um, sort of de-emphasize the, de- uh, de-emphasize the importance of the swim, and I think that can help. And I, I'd agree with that, Ian. And I notice because it is we break triathlon into swim, bike, run like it's three separate things. And you know what's the time I'm going to do for the swim? But the bottom line is, if you're three or four minutes slower in the swim than you planned you're probably going to be walking in the second half of the marathon anyway. So don't stress over three or four minutes lost yeah, swim. Definitely. It's just the first hour and a half of a 12 to 14 hour day. So, you know, focusing on the swim time. And I get that. However, I want to go back to this thing. The point is, if someone has a panic attack in the first five minutes and can't get the breath, then really that that's where potentially that swim could be ruined. That day could be ruined. It's yeah. something you can dwell on all day. So let's have a think about that because you're fine with the swim. I mean, we're talking about panic attacks. Nobody has a panic attack on the swim on the second lap either. Yeah. You've got a time window when it's going to happen, which is in the first five minutes of the swim. Because it, uh, what kind of advice for that? Because once I yeah. get going on the swim, you're all right. So there's, um, uh, I, and it's likely that this is something that is more likely to affect someone who's quite new to triathlon. So you usually see that more with people um, that are not used to swimming uh in competition or major competitions where they're putting more pressure on themselves, but also where you've got an open water swimming, they might not have done a lot of open water swimming, but there's that temperature difference that obviously affects people and can uh, shock the body um, when you've already got high levels of anxiety. So I think what, what can be a useful, um, uh, and but part of the problem with knowing how to deal with that is not planning for it in advance. So yeah. there's a technique you can use called sort of if then planning, where in advance you are and, and this isn't just for the swim this is something that you can do uh, on the bike and the run as well um you know if if this occurs this is how i'm going to respond and yeah. it gives it will make it less likely that it'll probably occur because you feel as though you've got some control over it and you've planned something in advance so i think for the for the panic attack um you know if, if you're very anxious in advance particularly about the swim then you know usually switching to breaststroke um, and not having the head in the water, being able to sort of adjust to the water temperature, settle the uh, heart rate, feel more comfortable, and then start um, progressively going back to a a front crawl can get people over a panic attack much quicker than if people just continue to try and, yeah, I've got to carry on because I can't lose this time. Um, I've just keep going and I'll I'll get over it. Um, but you can't breathe as effectively because, you know, obviously the shortness of breath is part of the panic attack. Trying to correct that breathing while you're doing a, a front crawl um, is very difficult, whereas while doing breaststroke, you can correct that. So if you have a plan in advance, that that's how you're going to respond to it. You know, I'm going to, for one minute, I'm going to switch to breaststroke. Then I'll start the front crawl again. If that, if I go, if the breathing goes again, then I'll, uh, then I'll do it for another minute. And then that that can be very uh, calming for people, I think. That's certainly what I would uh, would recommend in terms of um, ha- having a plan in place for that. Yeah, sorry, I just lost you for a minute, but you're back now. <laughs> yeah, we we've talked about this quite a bit in the past, haven't we? About that planning, you know, you plan for every eventuality. So if this happens, what am I going to do? If this happens, what am I going to do? And then and and then being calm enough to to then act on it if it does happen, 
you know. So, and I say that's half the problem is that if something goes wrong in races, often people don't have, they've not thought through the solution beforehand. So it's just headless chicken time because they don't know how to react. So thinking through that, what if this happens, what am I going to do? I think is a, is a key thing. But uh, Mike, what's your thoughts on it? Uh, very similar to everything that you guys have covered. Um, a lot of it is around forward thinking, either through actions or just planning. So um, unless you're a racing snake at the front of the field, again, uh, as Ian alluded to, it's more likely to happen to the novice, first-timer, recreational guys and girls, then starting out with that mindset that, you know, the swim isn't going to make my day, but it could definitely break my day. So yeah. it's very much a diffusing the importance of, of that section. It's a it's a long warm up. I tell a lot of people. Um, if it is more of a physical thing, then you know, if we are open and honest in the preparation stages, is it something we can try to overcome with exposure to group swimming, cold water starts? The tactics and the planning is key. Most, most cold water shocks I see are the people who just deviate from a tactic. So I had no intention of going max effort 400 metres to start off, but I've got sucked in and I'm getting kicked and pushed and my goggles have flown off and I'm, I'm, I'm now out of breath and I'm struggling. And that's when all these sort of spiralling downward effects kick in. So again, be very deliberate with your plan. Maybe, as Ian said, your plan is to start off with a breaststroke. I'm going to start right at the back or go really wide. I don't care if everyone's going to swim away from me because I will get into my rhythm and then I'll pick it up. And I'll finish in exactly the same time and I'll be just as tired, but it'll have just been a far more pleasant experience. Um, of course, you can practice some of that stuff if, if, if you're worried about it. And then the other one I liked, is, which Ian said, is, is something I, I'm a big fan of with some people I've worked with in the past, is almost make yourself have a controlled panic attack. Get it out the way. So it's, it's, you know, almost like I know I'm, you know, I, I can't get in and have cold water exposure first or I can't do whatever. So, you know, if it's going to come, it's going to come. But if I hang back and take away as many uncontrollables as I can, have a strategy and a structure of what I'll do when it happens, then then I can carry on. And I think the other thing is is to just defuse the threat of it. The fear of it is often what makes it 10 times worse when it happens. So I've had athletes in the past, one in particular was a very sort of melancholy, happy-go-lucky type of lady. And um, she literally used to like, she gave her fears and anxieties about the swim a name. She uh, and almost had this embrace. So when the panic kicked in, hello, darkness, my old friend, I've been expecting you type of thing, you know, but you bastard, you're not going to get me. So I'm going to go through this process that I know I had in, in mind and it could be singing happy songs to myself or whatever, roll on my back and then I'm going to go again. And, and it's almost a, a welcome and a dismissal of it that you're not going to beat me, um, which, you know, I guess the answer to most people would be somewhere on the spectrum of all of that. That's that's extreme, some of those stuff. But um, but definitely understanding if it may happen for some people and then diligently thinking what we can do not uh you know i think the worst mistakes people can make is go oh i'm really really fearful of this but let's just cross my fingers close my eyes and hope it doesn't happen yeah you know if it's a genuine fear for you let's be structured and tactical in what we're going to do if and when it happens and if it doesn't happen billy bonus we can move on to the next 
transition. But um, but those would be my tips. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the, the, one of the big things you put on there is, you know, people getting sucked in. So like you said, people planning to go off for the first 400 metres easy and then everybody else goes off hard. So they just go with it. And a lot of the things that we're talking about here, the executing things correctly on race day, it's very easy to put a plan in place, but then to execute it when you are under stress and it, or excitement, whatever word you want to use, you know, what tends race day makes intelligent people do really stupid things. You know, people will go, oh, yeah, well, I forgot to take my gels. What? Well, it's not complicated to remember to take a gel. Yeah, and I went off at 360 watts on the bike. Well, you know that's stupid, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But they just can't help themselves because they're drawn into what everybody else is doing or, you know, they just the, the anxiety and just, just lose focus. So a lot of things we're talking about are not complicated. It's just whether people can actually execute them on the day of the race, isn't it? Mm. So, yeah. and it's hard in somewhere like Bolton with such a big audience and a big field, but, yeah, you know, think outside the box sometimes. Can you outsource that control? Have you got a, a, a fan, a family member, someone coming to support you who can have the only remit is if you see me creep anywhere closer than 20 rows from the front of the swim, yeah, give me the look and make me go back because I know I'm likely to tiptoe forward and try to get in the water where I really shouldn't get in the water. Yeah. So, um, or, or, you know, the day before or, or as you get to the start, go, right, that row of portaloos or that big sign or that big inflatable, do not stand closer than that to start your swim because you're going to be in the wrong place if you get in anywhere closer than that. Yeah. So we change that focus then and then distract them a little bit with the mechanisms of that. Yeah. So I guess moving on from the swim, going on to the bike and, and kind of common mistakes that people make on the bike. So we're presuming, let's let's just presume that for a start, people have checked the course done all the basic things know the course read notes know how many laps you're supposed to be doing because people often don't you know just be really clear on all of that stuff but then actually um you know executing the bike then on the day so common mistakes that that people make um where do we want to start pacing that's a good one isn't it that's probably the biggest mistake that people make isn't it um so uh ian thoughts on this yeah i think we've already uh, sort of touched on it um in the early conversation didn't we in terms of uh pacing and uh, going off too hard is probably the, the, the number one uh here and i think uh, as i mentioned that sort of if then planning can can uh work across the different disciplines but it can also you know we don't just plan for if things have, have gone badly how do we respond how do we respond if we're feeling really good and what decisions do we make? Um, because quite often when you speak to people and they've gone off too hard on the bike, they'll say, but I was feeling really good. Uh, so I wanted to take advantage. And I, uh, so you've got to, but yeah, I'll go back to what I said earlier about sort of evaluating your performance afterwards. You make the decisions about how you're going to respond when, you, when you're thinking clearly, which is not, in the middle of competition obviously you need to do do need to make some decisions on the road um but yeah in terms of your strategy and your plan and your overall plan yeah make those decisions before so if you do feel if you are feeling good uh and obviously a lot of people have an idea around metrics on the bike and maybe working to a wattage 
there's still got to be limits within that that you're working within because you know if you go uh, you know crazy you know if you're feeling really good and like i think you mentioned 360 watts there uh mark you know or whatever it is you know crazy number for you then you are just setting yourself up for a fall not just for the second part of the bike but also for the, the run after that so you know set those limits in advance you know if you are feeling really good this is still the limit of way where you go to even if like yeah ex-athlete from your club has just gone past you um because that might those sort of ego involved decisions can be influential as well it's like well if he's going uh, at this point then maybe i should um and that becomes more important than the overall performance uh, thinking about this sort of makes me i think we need to be flexible in both directions as well just thinking back to our interview with uh, lizzie rayner the outlaw half um winner she had a, she had a goal for the uh, for on the bike um i think it was i might have got this wrong but i think it was 230 watts or something like that mike uh and then she was putting out about 215 220 she was below that consistently she was averaging averaging below it whatever it was it was sort of about 15 to 10 to 15 watts below consistently but she didn't panic uh and she continued to ride that was how she was feeling on the day and i think we've always got to be that you know part of the process is about that perceived exertion and how you're feeling on the day and matching that with what you're seeing on the on the screen in front of you um, in terms of making that those decisions, are, I think those on the fly, the decisions you do have to make on the day are still always going to be better if you've thought them through and planned for how you're going to make decisions in different scenarios in advance. Um, and obviously, we know how that worked out in terms of a, still having a strong bike uh, and then having a very strong run afterwards and going on uh, to be um, victorious. So I, I think we need to um, be very clear. You know, we do have targets that we're working towards, but we shouldn't be stressing ourselves if if we're not quite hitting those targets um, and recognising that it's a long day and that there's a lot, a lot can change further down the road. And, and the, uh, yeah, I'll leave it there because there's obviously some other big mistakes people make, but we'll, we'll stick to pacing for now. Yeah, I think I think along the pacing side for me is um, preparation of that pacing. So we talked about more the spontaneous stuff there, but um, it is the longest and, and sort of largest chunk of the race, obviously, where if the swim's not going to make or break, isn't going to make it, but could break it, then the bike can absolutely make a day as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, 112 miles is a daunting ride, however much preparation you've done. So I'm a big fan on, on the, you know, let's chunk the bike ride down the obvious one in most races is people just do it three laps but sometimes you know you don't ride the first lap the same as the second lap or the third lap weather and stuff can change so so i often sort of go you know first hour second hour or first 15 second 15 miles whatever so chunk it down know what your plan is for each one and in that plan it's not only your splits or your pacings it's your feeding strategies it's all of those things that are going to be important for the rest of the race not just the bike um and, and something that i think can solve a lot of people's problems and hardly anyone ever does it write down that strategy and bloody stick it on your top tube or something you know just just get a tiny little a post-it note stick it in a little sort of polythene bag or even laminate it and tape it to there so you don't have to stress and worry what your split time should be what your strategies should be 
you can look at it and you can see it almost like a, a quarterback looking at his play play calls on his wrist type of thing and just just take something away that that would be a threat or a worry to your pacing strategy um and as far as pacing goes that would that would be all i uh i would put down i guess as well then just you know don't don't train at x pace and think you can go and ride at y pace which is a massive problem for most people yeah i mean the the thing is i would say there's a a couple of things i want to pick up on and ask you thoughts on this as well and and i kind of hammer through them and then you can tell me what you think about each of these but the thing with the bike and the swim to some extent because i think people think oh if you overcook the bike you will walk on the run and that's we tend to see that a lot of people how hard you go on the bike will dictate whether you're able to run after it and that's fine but don't underestimate how much an hour and a half of hard swimming in open water will take out of you you know so the swim if you send most people to the pool and say go and do a four thousand meter training session in the pool at a decent pace they're knackered for the rest of the day so let's not underestimate how much it's taken out of the bike and run you know it that the, the swim is the hard but if you overcook the bike you're going to be walking on the run and and I think it's really important to say this, that because people become obsessed with, I think there's more obsession with the blokes in particular about the bike split. I think that's the cool thing, what your bike split is. I think there's maybe um, an overemphasis on, you know, bike power output and stuff like this. If you're walking on the run, however else, whatever excuse you want to use, if you're walking on the marathon, you went too hard on the bike. It's very, very simple. People almost, some people ignore that fact. They want to ride a 5.30 or a sub six or whatever on the bike. And then, and then I just had a bad run. No, you didn't. If you're walking on the run, you overcooked the bike. The bike was wrong. It's, there's, there's no two ways about it. And if you go easy on the bike, going 10 to 20 minutes slower on the bike is a huge difference. Running 10 to 20 minutes slower on the run happens in the blink of an eye. So backing off by 10 or 20 minutes on the bike will feel considerably easier than going 10 to 20 minutes faster. And you'll probably end up saving for some people an hour or more on the marathon, because as soon as you start walking, that's that. It's 20 minutes a mile, isn't it? You know, so the time gaps lost on the on the run are huge. But I think there's people are too obsessed with the with the with the bike and what's oh, I did this for the bike yeah but you walked the run oh, I got the bike right you didn't because you walked on the run you know and um, and I think I would throw into the mix in that how are you determining your bike Ironman pace so people determining their Ironman pace based on a 20 minute test which predicts FTP and says so you can ride this power for six hours we're predicting that from a 20 minute test now are we you know so how you're calculating Ironman pace is critical. And I think in a lot of cases is wrong. And people still think that the bike and the run somehow do not correlate. And if they walked on the run, it was because of a lack of run training or whatever else. They got the nutrition wrong. There's a lot of people still over biking and they don't realise that they're over biking. Thoughts on that? Ian? Oh, yeah, completely. I think um, you might get an indication uh, from a 20-minute test of what you think that you can do, but um, ultimately you've got to go out and do a ride of that length and then feel reasonably – you're going to be tired at the end of it, obviously, but still feel reasonably comfortable at the end. And also look at physiologically how you've responded 
um, you know, can you ride for that length of time without any significant um, physiological response, changing heart rate and so on? If you are, then, you know, that's that's giving you an indication that that might be an appropriate pace. Um, but you, it's got to be guided by something of approximately that length and being able to do that. Obviously, when you're on your race bike and in race position, that might change what you can, what you, speed you can do, but it shouldn't change the, uh, uh, as long as you practice enough on your race bike, it shouldn't change the wattage that you can put out. So it should be, you know, you should be able to put the same sort of power out and still feel comfortable over that length. Um, and I think that's the major one is that, you know, these, these short tests can be used to give you an indication, but it's got to have been actually doing something very similar to the actual um, discipline itself and the requirements of the discipline, not just from a physiological point of view as well, from a psychological point of view to give you the actual confidence that you can do it. Because I still think that quite often people will go hard in an event early on, you see it in marathons as well, because they think they want to get that under the belt and they want to get ahead. And that really that isn't, that's reflecting a lack of confidence in their ability to actually uh, ride or run effectively over the distance. Um, so doing something that is equivalent to it and feeling comfortable at the end of it um, as an indicator of what you can maintain will actually give you a lot more confidence in that as a strategy and a pace as well. Yeah. I'm gonna, I've got a question for you, Mike, then. Let me put this question to you, Mike. People talking on triathlon forums and Facebook pages and coach athletes talking about what's my Ironman pace on the bike. Now, you mentioned earlier on 112 miles riding is a challenge for anyone. You know, for most of the people in Ironman, 112 miles is a challenge just to ride that far. So what's your thoughts on that? People saying, what's my Ironman pace? As you mentioned with the 20 minute FTP test, the the methods people are using to predict that pace are so far off the mark generally that's the problem so the other things i see big mistakes on i can do a 50 mile group ride with my mates on a sunday in this so i now could double that and go faster because i'm caning it on my tt bike they've never ridden on the tt bike all year and they've drafted for a, a lovely fresh ride on a sunday and they've not added all those other elements in. So, so loads of mistakes there. Um, I sort of, you know, often get involved in, in some of those debates of, well, what's your 10 mile, what's your 25 mile, what's your 50 mile pace? And, and try and be, just shorten the margin of error for them predicting those scores. Um, I think some of the mistakes, again, which are made through the pacing, but, but are all relevant are, you know, they predominantly train hard, long rides on their road bike. And then they'll take their TT bike out, if at all, but they'll take it out uh, for shorter, harder rides. Mm-hmm. And then they think they can turn up on race day physically and psychologically ride in that position that hard for that long and deliver that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you may have the potential to ride that 112 miles that fast, but you've not put the building blocks together to be able to do it. And now when you're having to sit up on your TT bar with your teardrop helmet because your back's killing you or your neck pain or you just can't get your breathing right because you're, you've blown yourself out in a position you're not accustomed to, um, then there's simple, simple errors, which are easy to make. We're not, you know, we're not lambasting these athletes. These are things we all get wrong. 
but with a little bit of forethought and, and sort of a, a bit more common sense in their approach, they can easily be avoided. Yeah, I think it's worth throwing that in there because that's something we've not mentioned yet is the old don't try new stuff. <laughs> you know, don't do something you've not practiced. Don't drop your handlebars by an inch to get in a more aero position the week before. <laughs> yeah. You know, new stuff, people wanting new shoes, whatever it may be, you know, because that's a common one, isn't it? Yeah. And again, they're normally knee-jerk reactions to things that haven't gone as well in training. I haven't done the running I want. Let's buy some vapor flies because they'll make me faster. Um, and, and it's always, it's never a plan. Nobody ever sits six months out and goes, two weeks before, I'm going to buy the fastest shoe I can buy. It's always a reaction to something that's not gone the way they wanted it to be. Yeah. Um, but, um, but but those things. I think last one I put on um, on the bike stuff from me is mechanicals. Mm. So as much as you say, but when we were chatting about the swimming, you were saying that's where people have those panic attacks. I think the bit most people are scared of is the bike. When you rack your bike at the end, yeah. no punctures, no mechanicals. Most people have a a big sigh of relief, literally or metaphorically, because, right, I can get to the finish line now in, under my own control. Now, of course, there's accidents and mechanicals that are always out of people's control and are too catastrophic to, to recover from. But the number of DNFs or really bad experiences I've seen because someone hasn't nailed how to change their tyre, how to fix a broken chain, have they got enough gas canisters or whatever it may be, um, oh well, yeah, I've got I've got loads of these gas canisters, but I never practiced using one because you know they're like eight quid a pop to buy. I don't want to waste them for fun. Um, and I just have always seen too many people at the side of the road. The race has ended with something that they could have recovered from. Where they'd have to re sort of refactor and renegotiate what the race goal might be, but they are manageable and recoverable. So it's perfect time now as you're entering these last three weeks and these tapers. If you are got idle hands and you're a bit itchy, play with your bike, practice some stuff, do some looking up, go to your local bike shop when it's having its service and ask him to show you or her to show you the thing you're most scared of in case you can manage it. I yeah. just think, you know, there is there is a it's the other part, the, the, the non-human machine that we, we are vulnerable for and, and responsible to. So, um so if you are wanting to be that detailed or you, that's part of your fears and anxieties, then you can absolutely make some roads into trying to take uh, those uh, fears away. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the thing with a bike as well, I'm just kind of conscious of time because we it, last few minutes, but one of the, the big things we've not talked about, I guess, saying now that the bike will massively impact the run, and so, as the swim does, so, you know, swimming the right pace, being conservative, biking at the right intensity because to be honest for me i think what what percentage if you were to hazard a guess what percentage of people do you think will walk on the second half of the ironman marathon what would you say from your experience 70 percent higher than 70 percent i was going to say 75 yeah 75 percent of people so 75 percent of people are walking on the marathon Fair to presume they've probably gone too hard on the bike and they should have gone easier on the bikes. They weren't walking on the marathon. I think just like literally on the bike, we talk about this Ironman pace, just riding zone one easily and getting around the bike course is probably right for most people, you know, because they'll if they want to try and jog the whole marathon without stopping, 
I think anything harder than that, and the chances of them running the marathon are pretty slim, to be honest. I'm not even sure if Ironman pace exists for most people. I think it's just ride at zone one, and that's that. Um, but the um, we've not talked about nutrition. So, again, nutrition is going to be critical on the bike because on the run, you can't, you just can't fuel enough and you can't hydrate enough. You're going to dehydrate and run out of fuel on the run and you're going to suffer in the second half of the marathon. So it's pretty critical you come off the bike as well fueled as possible, ready to run, because we know the run is where people are going to have problems, where the race is going to go wrong, where they're going to lose the biggest chunks of time. So common mistakes or some simple tips for nutrition. What kind of things do we need to, to go with? Uh, Mike? Um, again, don't try new things that you might not have tried in training. Um, make sure you practice these things in training, work out what works and doesn't work. You know, there's always the free stuff on race day or someone next to you chucks you a gel or a bar that you've not been you know, used to. Um, I generally see more errors and problems caused from overfeeding than underfeeding. So you see more, more people get it wrong because they've, you know, the, the sports nutrition world has done a fantastic job at making us believe we're not going to have enough fuel to get around because that makes us buy more of their products. So, so um, learning to, to realise just how little sometimes we actually need. Um, that's and that that goes right through taper into pre-race into the old carb loading stuff and then right through race day you know we don't most athletes don't need as much as they think and they overhydrate and they get all those the balance wrong and then they end up with gi problems and and all of that stuff they panic in the water maybe they swallow tons of water and that has a knock-on effect with what they eat and drink later on um you know, I mentioned about the bike being a really good place to have the most disciplined, structured feeding strategy. But that doesn't mean you gorge on everything you can get down you for that period of time. Yeah. If you've if you've prepared right and you've executed your plan right, you may only have a couple of gels because the concentration of your fluid intake will be enough to to get you to the start line. And and we don't expect novices to get this perfect. We all still experiment and and develop our skills with these, no matter how many you've done. But um, but just just don't be unrealistic in how much you think you need. And just because you've got it doesn't mean you need to eat it. Mm-hmm. So um, so so that that would be my biggest tips on that. I'm from I'm from Wigan, mate. So that's 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 just part of one of the rules from living in the town. You know, if you've got it, you have to eat it. Something yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah. I. I and, and the other thing we see, you're saying about people handing up stuff and whatever, is this part of the race prep, isn't it? Again, knowing where the aid stations are. I, it's amazing how many people don't know, they go to an Ironman and don't know how long the time gaps will be. And so, well, look look on the notes. It tells you how far the mileage is. So then do your calculation. What's your average speed going to be? How many minutes is it going to take you to get from that aid station to that aid station? You're going to have enough water on the bike or, you know, so that's simple prep, isn't it? But uh, Ian, your thoughts on that? Some simple tips for the nutrition and simple mistakes that people make well i'll just follow up from from what mike said really because it ties into your, your process goals i think in terms of recognizing that it's going to be easier to get um energy and fluid on board on the bike i think you mentioned it as well than it is on the run but also um you know we are very influenced by the marketing and a lot of people would be trying to hit 60 grams per hour if it's glucose or 90 grams per hour if it's glucose fructose mix but unless you've tried that uh, in practice and, and at race pace but and for an equivalent sort of distance, 
um, then you're probably not going to manage that. That's but you know, they're the limits of what people can take in when everything's going well. But when you've got the stresses of competition and you've got the the pressures on the body and you've got an extended period of competition, the chances of being able to maintain that intake throughout uh, are, are unlikely. And as Mike says, you know, from my experience and from uh, experience of others that I know of, you probably don't need those levels of intake to get your best performance out. So if you know if 30 grams per hour is the most you can take in comfortably, then that's what you should take in because you know the minute you start throwing up and you can't take any more fluid or anything back on uh, on board, that's when it's going to again what we're trying to avoid is those. Uh, uh, occurrences that take 10, 20, 30 minutes of your time, you know, not not getting worried about the minutiae of the sort of one or two minutes. And that's what, you know, hitting 90 grams per hour might get, you know, if you are able to do it, might gain you a minute or two. But having gastrointestinal issues that affect your bike and your run are going to add half an hour, 45 minutes to your time. Yeah. So working at the bottom end and working up, but then having a clear target in terms of what you're doing and writing those goals down. Uh, so if you if you have got those targets for your pacing on your crossbar, then have your nutrition goals alongside them as well. And it should be these factors that you're actually evaluating yourself based upon afterwards, rather than whether you hit your performance targets and so on, because that takes the pressure off you in terms of hitting those performances as well. You know, what do you do if it's a windy day? Yeah, you're probably not going to hit those performance targets, but you can still hit all those other process targets that you set for yourself. Yeah. Um, so that's what we should be focusing on. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we've talked about this plenty of times before about process orientated versus goal orientated. Yeah. You, know, you go into Ironman being process orientated. So you go into your race planning. I'm going to start here in the swim. I'm going to swim at this pace. I'm going to try and get on feet. This is what I'm going to do. Then on the bike, I will ride at this intensity. I will fuel this way. And you just go through the processes rather than getting on the bike and thinking, I have to ride five and a half hours. You yeah. know, you go through, and if you do the processes right, the time at the end of the day will be the best time, won't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for bikes, we've said get the pacing right. Don't be a hero. Get your fueling right. Keep it simple. How much carbohydrate can you uh, take on board? And I think for those people who perhaps can only stomach 30 grams an hour, more important for those people not to be a hero spiking on every single climb, isn't it? Because they're just going to deplete the fuel. So ride to how much, you know, if, you, if you're going to take a certain amount of fuel in your car, you wouldn't drive it in first and second gear everywhere, would you? So so adjust your bike intensity to the amount of fuel you're taking as well. And don't try new stuff. Um, and and uh, yeah, get then get ready for the run because the run is pretty much where it's going to go pear-shaped, isn't it? I suppose that I was fine with, with, with Ironman. It's almost like you're following the processes to get to the run and then you know at some point on the run it's just going to go wrong. So there's almost perhaps there may be processes involved in the run, which were the same as the bike, to be fair. So the fueling and hydrating, what pace do you need to set off at? How should it feel? So setting off at the right pace. But for, for most people, it's going to go wrong somewhere, isn't it? So just to finish then, you get to that second half of the run and it's about to go wrong. So th- uh, just top tips to finish for that second half when you've, you're stopping, you're walking, you're vomiting, you're throwing up, you're really struggling. Tips to get you to the end. Ian? Go you're, really se- you're really selling it there, Mark. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think you've got to break it down, haven't you? I think the number one thing that you can do at that point is break, what, break it down 
uh, and tell yourself that how you feel at that point is not necessarily how you're going to feel in five miles or, or six miles. So break it down to that particular mile or until the next aid station, have a clear plan um, in advance as well, what you're going to do if you're feeling like that. So is it, you know, um, taking a brief walk break or a walk break through the aid stations? Um, is it, you know, take it backing off until you get your temperature down? So I think you've got to evaluate what it is that you might be causing you to feel bad as well. So if it is gastrointestinal, can you take water on board and try and help uh, through that pot? And if you can't take water on board, can you use it to cool you down externally? Because that's the other thing that you can still do, even if you've got gastrointestinal issues. Um, and you know, do you need to back off the intensity um, to, to help you um, cool down as well and recover for a, a, a period of time? But I think that breaking it down into smaller chunks and having a plan for what you'll do if you feel like in, in that situation are the number one to, um, uh, uh, things that I would recommend. Yeah, which goes back to what you said before. If you, if you think you're going to run through the whole thing and fly through it and not have a problem, if you then have to walk in the second half, you haven't prepared for that. You never expected it, so you didn't have a plan. So it's have a plan for those things. And if you've got a plan, that kind of takes the stress away because you know when you're in that situation, you're not going to go into headless chicken mode. You're just going to execute that backup plan that you had, whether it's jogging, walking, like you say, just drinking water, whatever it may be, but your head just doesn't completely go. Uh, Mike, top tips from you to finish. My top tips for the run is that for, for the second half of the run is that the first half of the run influences the second half. So if you need to spend that minute or two longer in T2, drying feet, putting your socks on properly, getting ready to run a marathon, it's worth it waiting gold. Don't have the strategy that a lot of people have of I planned or wanted to run eight minute mile in. So what I'll do is I'll run eight minute mile in as long as I can and then the wheels will fall off. It may be that I actually run at nine minute mile in because I can keep that going for the whole race. So so be honest with what your plans are there. And then the last thing I'd say on it is that we still have this myth and this sort of dogma that walking is a weakness in an Ironman. Walking can be your superpower and you can have a deliberate walk run strategy for the first eight miles. I'm going to run for eight minutes, walk for two for the next eight miles. I'm going to maybe drop to six minute run and walk for four. And in the last eight miles, it'd be five and five or even a negative split. So there's more walk and I'll be able to keep that walking going. And now all I'm concentrating is on the next eight minutes, the next two minutes, the next eight minutes, the next two minutes. And your marathon flies by because you've broken it right down into chunks of chunks. And you've not tried to be a hero and run it at a certain pace. And you've not let the ability, you've not let that time point when you start walking be the, oh, that's it, wheels have fallen off, game over. You can still combine it in a really smart and strategic strategy that gets you to your goal as much as you want. Yeah, well, based on my me not running very much at all since uh, since February, walking is definitely going to be my superpower in three weeks if I, if I get on the start line. And that's for the bike, not for the run. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll, we'll end it there for now because we've been over an hour and a half, so we probably should, uh, should stop talking. Pleasure as always, gents. Um, um, I, we'll get this out as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, I look forward to the next one. So thank you very much. Goodbye for now. Take care. Thank Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. 
you can follow Mike, the endurance physio, at the endurance PT, and you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's MD Sport EX. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit theendurancestore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer the endurance coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out sportsinjuryfix.com where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.